Hello and welcome back to Panam, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place and the traces they've left behind. This is the second part of Delacroix. Today we are walking in his footsteps because while plenty of his works are displayed in the Louvre, we can also see them for free in some of the churches around Paris. And you know, I like nothing more than a walking tour, so let's get going. Let's start with his earliest work that we're able to visit in the Marais in the church of Saint-Paul-Saint-Louis, located in the 4th arrondissement near Place de Vosges. This Baroque church, which is full of fun things to see, like the seashell font which was donated by Victor Hugo, and some rather extraordinary sculptures, as well as some graffiti dating from the time of the Commune, which reads République Française au la mort, was built in the 17th century by the Jesuits, and it houses one of Delacroix's earliest paintings, Christ on the Mount of Olives, which depicts Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. It was commissioned by the church in 1824, so Delacroix would have been in his late 20s. It's a large canvas measuring nearly three by three and a half metres, and it's quite nice looking at a painting like this in this place that it was meant to be seen rather than in a museum, as it really makes you understand why these paintings are so big. It depicts Jesus, who after the Last Supper, goes to the Mount of Olives on a hill in Jerusalem to pray. He leaves his disciples at the entrance to the garden, except for three of them, Peter, James and John. But though they're with him, in this painting they're asleep. Jesus is awake, but sort of sitting up. He holds one of his hands up towards three female angels who are bathed in heavenly light and seem to be weeping. Jesus looks down, his face a mix of pain and resignation. His other hand supports him, leaning on rocks, and his position, his arms outstretched, his body contorted slightly, gives us a terrible foreshadowing of what is to come. In the distance, we can see the troops of soldiers coming to arrest him. Delacroix mixes this idea of light and darkness in an attempt to show Christ's inner turmoil. He uses rich and warm colours with shades of yellow, orange and brown dominating. It is unusual in that usually only one angel is depicted, and here we have three. It seems full of sadness and symbols, and is really worth popping into the church to check out. But let's leave it there and continue our walking tour to the next church. Still in the Marais, we will find the Church of Saint-Denis du Sacrement located in the 3rd arrondissement. This neoclassical church, built in the early 19th century, houses one of Delacroix's most moving religious paintings, La Pieta. A Pieta is a depiction of Mary holding her son's body when he is taken down from the cross. This painting was an official commission because it was placed by the prefect of Paris at the time, Baron Rambuteau, in 1840. Initially, Delacroix had not been the one asked to do this painting, perhaps because he was an atheist and the commission had been given to a painter named Joseph Nicolas Robert Fleury. Quite a name. The latter, perhaps uninspired or too busy, asked Delacroix to do the work for him. Rambuteau, after prevaricating, finally gave in. At this time in his career, Delacroix was far more established and confident, and we see his characteristic style really coming through. This work was different to the one we've just seen, mainly as it was done in situ, and the chapel, by all accounts, was very dark. 
Delacroix writes, quote, The chapel where I painted my Pieta was so dark I didn't know how to paint my picture at first. I was then obliged to paint the shadows in the body of Christ with Prussian blue, the lights with pure chrome yellow. Incredibly, he finished the work, which is an imposing two metres by three, in just 17 days, although he did have an assistant, and he painted directly onto the wall. In the painting, we see Mary receiving the body of Jesus as he descends from the cross, as we would expect. Mary has her arms outstretched, which is a very unusual position for Pieta, and one that mirrors that of her son on the cross. In this position, she simultaneously recalls the past, the crucifixion, and the future, the image of the cross, that the church will use in the future. The women and disciples form a frame around the grieving Mary and her son. What is remarkable, at least for me, is the very vivid colours and vibrant brushstrokes. Even though it's dark and pretty high up, it's still very noticeable. Delacroix has used a dark, almost greyish colour for the skin of Jesus, and curiously, a ginger beard. At his head, we see Mary Salome, and at his feet, Mary Magdalene. Their eyes red from crying, though they are pretty heavy-handed, and Mary Magdalene's eyes are so red, they almost look a little demonic. His use of loose and spontaneous brushwork creates a sense of immediacy and personally feels a little unsettling. This is an image of death, but with all this swirling movement, which suggests possibly the pain felt by the people in the painting, it feels it could almost suggest the possible future movement of Christ. This painting was praised by the poet Baudelaire, who describes it as, quote, a masterpiece that leaves in the mind a deep feeling of melancholy. I had never set foot in this church before, so it was quite a treat for me to discover. Right, let's now go to the third and final church, and the most famous. For that, we need to cross the river and head over to Saint-Sulpice, located in the 6th arrondissement near the Luxembourg Gardens, and just a toddle away from Delacroix's final home, which was actually one of the reasons he moved there, so as to be closer to this church. Delacroix is by now an older man. This is his last great project, so let's go into the Saint-Sulpice to have a look. We've been here before, of course, but it's such a lovely place, it's always nice to return. It's an absolutely huge building, nearly as big as Notre Dame Cathedral, but with a late Baroque edifice, it took more than a century to complete. We find Delacroix's work just as we enter the church. He's on the right-hand side in the first chapel, the Chapel of the Holy Angels, and this ambitious project took him between 1855 and 1861 to finish. He painted three monumental murals on the walls, depicting scenes from the Bible involving angels. Of course, it's the Chapel of Angels. Since we're about to get into it, let's think a minute about angels. The word comes from the Greek angelos, a translation of the Hebrew word meaning messenger. And they were indeed spiritual messengers. And sometimes they do missions, but they do not have wings. In fact, they look just like ordinary people, which is why they can blend in and why we should be on our guard when strangers ask us for help, lest they be angels in disguise. In art, however, they are usually depicted with wings to differentiate them from people and remind us that they are heavenly beings. Look at the Greek statue of Nike, the winged goddess of victory, and you pretty much have a perfect model for an angel. There are winged beings in the Bible, the seraphim, who have six wings, but are not always very human-like. 
And of course, there are the cherubim, which are surprisingly not fat babies at all, but rather hybrid-like beasts with the head of a lion or an eagle or an ox and hooves. Think more like the lamasso, which you can also see in the Louvre. They're meant to be intimidating and stand guard between the boundaries of heaven and earth, and they represent all the creatures of the earth. So how they became fat babies, I do not know. So those are the angels in the Bible. But Delacroix, not a religious man himself, turned for inspiration to Christian cultural tradition and the past masters like Rubens, Titian, but especially Raphael. Let's start at the top. On the ceiling, we see St. Michael slaying the devil, based on a story from the book of Revelation. St. Michael was an archangel who led the heavenly army against Satan and his followers in a cosmic war. Delacroix shows him plunging his sword into the sides of a monstrous winged creature, we presume to be Satan, and about to throw him into a pit, while other demons lie slain around him. The painting is full of drama and energy, with swirling clouds and golden light framing our heavenly warrior. Delacroix creates a dynamic composition that draws our eyes from the centre to the edges. You can see the painting by Raphael of St. Michael swooping down to impale a prostrate Satan in the Louvre, which surely helped to inform and inspire Delacroix. Let's hear from the Bible. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Take that, Satan. Let's move to the left wall. Now on the left wall, we see the expulsion of Heliodorus from the temple, based on a story from the second book of Maccabees. Heliodorus was a Syrian general who tried to plunder the temple of Jerusalem, but was stopped by divine intervention. Delacroix shows him lying on the ground, surrounded by his terrified soldiers, while a horseman on a rather lovely horse and two wingless angels appear, as if they're flying through the air to punish him by beating him with bundles of sticks. They do not have wings, which makes them look like they're doing some rather remarkable ninja moves. The painting is full of movement, uh, of people and material, contrasts and depth and, of course, colour. This was another subject that was treated by Raphael in his fresco in the Vatican. But while Raphael's fresco is carefully balanced, Delacroix creates a feeling of energy and tension. And it is really rather fun. The huge temple he creates is based on his knowledge of Moroccan architecture. And this is the work he signs. So maybe it was his favourite. And actually, I think it's mine, mainly for the horse. Let us have some Bible to inspire us. Now, as he was there present himself with his guard about the treasury, the Lord of Spirits and the Prince of All Power caused a great apparition, so that all that presumed to come in with him were astonished at the power of God, and fainted or were sore afraid. For there appeared unto him a horse with a terrible rider upon him, and adorned with very fair covering, and he ran fiercely and smote at Heliodorus with his forefeet, and it seemed that he that sat upon the horse had a harness of gold. Moreover, two other young men appeared before him, notable in strength, excellent in beauty, and comely in apparel, who stood by him on either side, and scourged him continually, and gave him many sore stripes." I nearly quoted from a more modern version, but I really liked him being smoked. 
It doesn't actually mention angels in this passage, but there are beautiful men with comely outfits, so I think that definitely means angel. Finally, on the right wall, we see his most famous of the three paintings. This is the struggle of Jacob with the angel based on a quite well-known story from the book of Genesis. Although it does look a little bit like Jacob is having a lovely dance with the angel. They're placed in a tree grove, so it's rather bucolic, and apparently Delacroix even used some of his favourite trees as models, which I needlessly approve of. It's a pretty good story, and like I said, quite well known, but if you're not familiar with it, then let's get into it. If you'd like a deeper analysis of the Bible story, I would highly recommend checking out the podcast The Bible Project, which is really, really good. Basically, the story of Jacob wrestling the angel is about blessings and brothers and fighting and is quite confusing as all Bible stories are, as there seems to be lots of narrative gaps and into those gaps people pour all sorts of interpretation. Let me just read you the part of the passage so you can see what I mean. So just to put it into context, Jacob has left his home due to a pretty important falling out with his brother and after 20 years he's heading back but it looks like his brother is not over their beef and he's heading his way with his men so Jacob retreats to keep him and his family safe. This is the night before he's due to arrive and finally confront his brother. So from the Bible. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And that's it. One minute, Jacob is sending his wives and belongings across the river and the next he's wrestling a man. There is no narrative structure like, ooh, Jacob looked up and saw a man coming towards him wearing a comely outfit. And then he said, what are you looking at? And then they got into it. No, one minute he's alone and the next he's wrestling till daybreak. So what's going on? I had to find out more to try and understand it and so now I'm going to tell you. Needless to say, I am not a biblical expert, so most of my research has come from the Bible Project and a few other podcasts as well as my own reading. So you might have different ideas or more information. Feel free to share those with me. I'm always very interested. Anyway... Let's think about Jacob. So he is the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. And if you don't know much about the Bible, then like me and Delacroix, then let me tell you, Abraham is pretty important. He Here is a very quick summary to bring us all up to speed. So the Bible starts out with the OG couple, that's Adam and Eve, and leaders say they get things wrong, the apple, etc, etc. Then their children, Cain and Abel, well, I'm sure you know it all ends badly when Cain kills Abel. Cain then goes on to establish a city which is full of woe and bad people and possibly demigods called Nephilim. Let's not get into that. God is very upset um, and so upset that he decides to reboot humanity and drowns everyone, except of course for Noah and his family and the animals. Hurrah, they can all start again. But sadly, no, things spiral once again into disarray, starting off with a scene where Noah gets very drunk in his vineyard, see the garden again, and then passes out naked in his tent, uh, which is very shameful. 
apparently. Things go from bad to worse, culminating in the creation of the Tower of Babel. And God doesn't like that, so he scatters everyone. God goes back to the drawing board, but he's still not ready to give up on people. So instead of a flood this time, he chooses one family or one couple, Abraham and Sarah. And through them, God hopes to once again rescue humanity. God promises Abraham that he will become a father of nations and that he will bless his descendants. Is it smooth sailing from then on out? Of course not. Abraham makes some very questionable choices and ultimately God gives him his famous test of asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac, which Abraham is prepared to do and then God forgives him. So now the focus is on Isaac as Abraham's son, who is therefore also blessed. And now let's go forward from Isaac to his son and therefore Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, Jacob is actually a twin, but significantly, he is the second born. Usually in society, the first born gets all the good stuff. But in the Bible, the second born often gets there instead. You can see this from the very beginning. God creates first the animals, then the humans though humans get to rule even though they came later. Abel, the second born, is favoured over Cain, and spoiler, Cain doesn't take it well. Isaac, Jacob's father, is also a second son. Ishmael was the first born. And the same is true of Jacob. When Jacob's mother was pregnant, she felt the babies wrestling within her and spoke to God who said, Two nations are in your womb. One people will be stronger than the other, and the great one will become the servant of the little one. The great one here means the older one. So from the beginning, before his birth, Jacob is destined to be the one to rule, to have the power. But from his very birth, Jacob doesn't seem to believe this and tries to scheme and take power. He's actually called Jacob, or rather Yaakov, as he comes out clutching his brother's heel. Heel in Hebrew is Akev, and so his name literally means heel grabber. Within this name, there is both the literal sense of grabbing a heel, but it can also mean someone who trips people up or deceives. And indeed, as Jacob grows up, he turns out to be a trickster, continually trying to steal his brother's birthright. One day, his brother comes in from hunting. His brother is quite the outdoorsy type, by all accounts, and very hairy. That's important later. And Jacob has been making a tasty lentil stew. And his brother is so hungry. He's like, give me some of that delicious stew. And Jacob is like, only if you give me your birthright. And uh, his brother says, OK, because he thinks he's going to die of hunger otherwise. Next is a more complex, for me at least, story. Isaac, their father, is about to die. Um, and is going to bless his oldest son. So he first asks him to head out hunting and get some tasty meat and make him some food, and then he'll bless him. But while he's out, the older brother, hunting, Jacob's mother says he should get in there instead and trick the father into blessing him, which is what he does. His brother finds out, and he's so angry, Jacob has to leave and heads out to his uncle, where he falls in love with his uncle's daughter, Rachel his cousin, and agrees to work for seven years for her hand in marriage. But the uncle tricks him, and he ends up marrying the older sister. Basically, he ends up staying there and working for the uncle for 20 years. Finally, he decides to leave, and in order to do this, you guessed it, he tricks the uncle. Then on the night of his return, just before dawn, the man, that we've already read about in the Bible, appears to him, and they fight. 
it's a powerful struggle. And what the man finds is that Jacob is really determined and refuses to let go. So what does the man angel do? He, quote, strikes the hollow of his thigh. That actually leads to his hip being dislocated. Now, what does it mean? What is the hollow of the thigh? Well, this is basically the crotch. In other words, the angel punches Jacob in the dick. Sadly, Delacroix does not show this particular moment. Then the man, slash angel, says the sun is about to rise. Let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you give me a blessing. And the man says, what is your name? So he says, Jacob. And the man says, your name is no longer Jacob. You will be struggles with God, Israel, because you have struggled with God, but you have prevailed. So again, his name is very significant. He goes on to be the father of the Israelite people. In the Bible Project, they explain it as the idea of an irresistible force, God's desire to bless, meeting an immovable force, which is human stupidity, folly and selfishness. God has tried to bless Jacob from the very beginning, but he schemes and manipulates to get this blessing, blinding him to the fact that God is actually willingly trying to give it to him. He can't seem to believe that God just wants him to receive a blessing. So God wounds him in order for him to understand and accept it. And he limps from that day on. Tough love. I mean, no surprises, really. I'm glad the Bible Project was able to get into this for me and because I do find it quite a confusing story. For me, it feels like God predicts Jacob will receive the blessing because he tricks his father. And when he wrestles the angel, there's a lot of talk on other podcasts, because I listen to quite a lot, about the idea of wrestling with faith. But for me, it seems that Jacob has no doubt that this man is actually an angel. He does have faith in that. And he has faith that this angel can bless him. The doubt seems to be throughout that he will get this blessing. I suppose that is a sort of lack of faith. Like Hamlet, he doesn't doubt that he sees his father's ghost, only that the ghost is telling the truth, if you see what I mean. But I suppose it's all a kind of metaphor for wrestling with faith. So that's just a little bit of the context of Jacob and the angel, which I found myself getting deep into. So how were these paintings received? Well, considering how long he worked on them and how hard, by all accounts, they by all accounts, he was here every single day except Sunday when he wasn't allowed to work, though he actually wanted to so he could listen to the music. Um, the paintings got mixed reviews. A religious artist of the time, Merson, was appalled, saying that the work was, quote, too human, while some Catholic critics found the image too stirring in, and lacking in serenity. Although it's not a serene story. Um, and also, what did they expect? Delacroix is not really a serene painter. And it feels fitting that he, Delacroix, a man without a strict religious faith, should paint this image of a man wrestling with his faith, his God, his destiny. Delacroix wrote about his own belief, saying that, quote, God is within us. It is the interior presence which makes us admire beauty. So he does have some spirituality, but he's not Catholic, so to speak. Which is not surprising because a lot had happened to God and the government since Delacroix's birth. The proof of which is still legible on the actual church of the Saint-Sulpice itself. If, as you go into the church, you can still see graffiti on the door dating from the revolution, which says, Le peuple reconnaît l'être suprême et l'immortalité de l'âme, which is the people recognise the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. During the revolution, God was killed off and reason took his place. 
But since then, the Republic had fallen, Napoleon Bonaparte had risen and fallen, the monarchy had returned and gone again, and now, at the time of Delacroix's painting, is Napoleon III. One of his many programmes in Paris was the decorating and renovation of the churches. His uncle, Napoleon I, had made an agreement with the church, a concordat, which gave the control of church finances to the state while leaving them, in, while leaving them the church, in charge of their own spiritual affairs. Generosity towards the church, Napoleon, the, Napoleon thought, was a good way to get Catholics on their side, but decorating them with beautiful art done by non-believers seemed to appease both sides. Personally, I have very much enjoyed heading into the churches to see the works of Delacroix. Apart from St Paul, which actually can be quite busy, more often than not, if you want a quiet moment in Paris, head into a church. They're normally very nice, very peaceful, very quiet, and you can sit down and, you know, look at all the lovely art that's inside. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm going to try and put up some pictures on Instagram of all of the churches and the works by Delacroix that I've mentioned. And that's it for now. Take care. Bye bye.